Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you very much for turning up for this panel. And welcome to this very beautiful room. I mean, it's, it's, it's so wonderful. And there are two paintings in here by a woman, by the same woman. Well, it's one woman represented on the walls here. Mary Moser, the two flower paintings in the corner over there, which reminds me of that wonderful painting of the founder members of the RA, where they're in the life room, they're all men painting, you know, there with the, the model, and the two women founder members, Mary Moser and Angelica Kaufman, are represented by their images on the wall because they weren't allowed to be in the life room. So th some things have changed, some other things have not. If you're familiar with the East, Fawcett, East London Fawcett's um, survey of art exhibiting and um, prices within London, which they did about three years ago. You can find it online. Um, you'll see there's huge discrepancies in the number of women um, who are getting exhibitions. Um, and then if you look at the auction prices, the publicly released figures for auction prices show that women's work still grossly underperforms work by men. So there is still a huge gender specificity or sexed specificity to the way the art world works. And I think we're going to be addressing some of that today with the, with the panel. The title, Perspectives of a Female Artist, I think directs us into thinking about looking, thinking about women in focus and perspectives. You know, we, we are directed towards, towards looking immediately. And I'd like to just rehearse a couple of different kinds of arguments about women and the gaze and, and looking that have probably informed a lot of where we are at the moment in the spaces of the studio and in the critical and theoretical spaces that we occupy when we, when we look at work by women. From the wonderful John Berger back in 1972, saying men act and women appear, men look at women, women watch themselves being looked at. This determines not only most relations between men and women, but also the relation of women to themselves. The surveyor of woman in herself is male, the surveyed female. Thus, she turns herself into an object, and most particularly an object of vision, a sight. And in this very influential 30-minute TV program on the relationship between men and women in representations in high art and in popular culture, I think what Berger did was to galvanize a whole set of thinking that was emerging from the women's movement at that time. And to, to get a, a, and I think it, it, it sort of was a catalyst for a lot of thinking about, about representation. Um, and the following year, Laura Mulvey, who had just graduated with a third-class honours degree from Oxford, um, wrote Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, published two years later uh, in 75, which is now the most cited essay, apparently, in film studies. Um, <laughs> and in this essay, she, she talked about the, the representational um, difference between men and women within classic Hollywood movies and how men were the um, were the people who were able to look and the male audience was able to identify with male protagonists in the movies whereas the the image of woman in these in these classic movies was turned into um, to be looked atness she she coined this phrase to be looked atness that that uh, that that um, she 
um, felt conveyed how women operated within such movies. And, and within that, within the the essay, which is one of the most beautifully constructed essays um, that, that I think um, academia has produced, um, she she looks at the real difficulty that there there would be, or she, it's almost it's omitted really, the difficulty that's there that for for women to identify with a pleasurable image of women. You know, you either have to be the masochist or you have to see yourself as as totally passive. So. All of these debates around the sexualized gaze. She used, she coined the phrase in that movie, in that in that film, the male gaze, and she used it just once in in the in the um, essay. Um, but then, going beyond that into the eighties and nineties, there was a lot of work around what could a female gaze be? What happens when the looked at looks back? How can we claim agency in the female gaze? How can we begin to have a, a, a look that is um, that, that has subjectivity that doesn't regard itself only as, as looking back because we are the object of, of surveillance and um, so you know how, how can we how can we actually configure desire through the female gaze what what are the women's desires that are not presently being Represented within within broader culture. Um, more recently, I'm interested in the writing of Nick Murzoff, uh, who has done so much to establish the field of visual culture. And recently, he's produced a book called I think it's the, the Right to Look, um, which came out a couple of years ago. And in that book, he traces the history of the word visualizing and visuality and he traces it right back to a military beginning um, where um, commanders on the battlefield would uh, have have maps or put themselves on a, on a hill or you know position themselves so that they could visualize what was going on and this was um, became a, a, um, a military tactic to, to visualize and then later on within the slave trade and the plantations in the Caribbean, the word the overseer was used. And there are representations of the white overseers literally overseeing the black workers. So what, what Merzoff is doing is, is um, differencing the concept of, of visuality and who has the right to look um, and re-politicizing it in terms of, of race very explicitly. And he's been doing a lot of work with the Black Lives Matter movement in, in the States as well. Um, and how these um, the, the murders of predominantly young black men, but um, also women, um, how these have been captured visually and how visual evidence is used within the, within the courts and where the power lies, who has the right to look, who has the right to represent this, this, um, this, this imagery. Um, but I think that um, what else is... Another, another um, area that I think could be interesting for today, today's discussion comes out of the work of Lucy Rigorai, where she argues for relationships between human beings in general, but, but women in particular, that are subject-subject relationships, not subject-object relationships. So any of you who um, know anything about Freudian theory will be very familiar with the concept of subject-object relationships. 
Irigre is arguing for subject-subject relationships and that you recognize in if you have a subject-subject relationship, you recognize that your own subjectivity is limited because it comes up against another, the subjectivity of another person. Once you stop treating the other person as an object, then you have to recognize that your own subjectivity has its, has its limits. Um, and she says that what happens in the relationships, particularly between mothers and daughters, is that you are so close because you're you have the same sexed subjectivity as your daughter or as your mother, as a woman. Um, and she suggests that, that mothers and daughters actually interpose handmade objects between themselves as a means of mediating the relationship so that you don't... She, she, she talks about flaying the skin off each other. You're so close that it's painful sometimes. And the interposing of handmade objects between you um, can help articulate the relationship in a way that is, is less painful, that you can externalize it to, to a certain extent. And I think that these arguments are very interesting when it comes to thinking about the making of art, and particularly women making art that is then received by other women. So, you know, maybe thinking about the art object, not necessarily as the art object, but as a means of mediation and communication between subjects. Let me introduce the panel and then ask them to begin to answer some of these questions. So next to me is Eva Rothschild RA. She's an Irish sculptor who's interested in the transformative power of looking. She uses materials such as plexiglass, leather, and paper in her sculptural work, and also has an extensive body of wall-based works and video. Recent exhibitions and public commissions have included the Hugh Lane Gallery, Dublin, in 2014, a large-scale sculpture, Why Don't You?, at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas, Texas, in um, 2012, and the film that I really want to see and haven't, called Boys in Sculpture, which was made for the Whitechapel Gallery's Children's Commission in 2012. Um, next to her is Vanessa, Vanessa Jackson, RA. She is a painter and installation wall painter whose use of geometry and its three-dimensional uh, three dimensional function deny the supposed flatness of modernist space. Her work explores the contradiction of a fully realized space at once pertaining to logic and completeness and uncertainty and unease. Vanessa studies at St. Martin's School of Art, followed by the Royal College of Art. She was president of the New Contemporaries in 1975 and has had a prolific teaching career, holding the position of MA and research tutor at the RCA until 2007, and senior tutor at the RA schools for 15 years until 2013. And then um, next to her is Josie Cockrum, who is a recent graduate of the RA schools. Josie works with photographic print, moving image, sculpture, and sound. She is interested in the politics of affect, emotion, and attachment, ascribing value to ideas of the helpless, distracted, frustrated, or peripheral. After graduating, Josie was awarded the Land Securities Trust Studio residence, residency at Bow Arts for one year. She's now working at Plymouth Arts Centre on a Batter Street Studio residency until May of this year. Yes, this year, and running an artist peer forum at Camden Arts Centre in association with ArtQuest. Um, so it's a, a wonderful panel, and I think it's very interesting how we have three different generations um, represented here. And I also find it very interesting that um, when we're talking about 
um, gendered identity, sexed identity. There's no easy way into that discussion with the work of any of these women because on the surface of it, they're working in non-representational non forms. Um, you can see the work of each of them behind here. This is um, Vanessa's work that we're seeing at the moment, and this will just be looping through as a background to the conversation that we have. So I think I'd like to ask each of you to just say a couple of sentences about why you were interested in being part of this panel and what made you respond to the brief. I wonder if, Josie, if I could ask you first. Yeah, so I think there are two places where I thought about the questions that came up. One is the ways in which the questions of gender and values, political value, are in the work itself. And then another about how I... Um, exist in the world as a female artist um, um, what that role is what's put on me and what I hold myself um, and I'm really just beginning to negotiate that so I'm looking to how these guys do it but thinking about values in my work values that are um, perpetuated and encountered by the gaze of the viewer and then also my own gaze and my own voice um, looking out um, I think one of the things that when I was studying at the schools um, that felt like a big part of unpicking my practice and putting it back together was was questioning um, that political value within the work and being someone who didn't necessarily um, made work that was didactic or, or pointed at things and says and so it's not obviously political in any way but I had a real sense that um, I, I needed to find a sense of the ground that I stood on and that for me was a political sensibility in the work so um, my work is um, it starts out I think as you said as, as kind of fairly direct documentation and I should say that in the images um, some of them are images of installation and I work with sound and moving image so that is a big part of the experience of the work really there is a, a video I think on the website if you're interested but um, so I'm interested in feeling and and uh, and um, affect and and I think that um, I guess those an understanding of feeling as ha of, of political consequence was a big part of the, the feminist um, whole project. Really, was kind of politicising feeling and affect and and there are people that I'm interested in in now, like Lauren Ballant, who. Um, uh, who talks a lot about the, the politics of effect and desire. Um, so, yeah, I, I won't get into too much, as, but just as a, an introduction, I guess there is things like the um, there's an image of a TV in some of my work. Yeah, just very briefly, that one. And so, yeah, that was... Um, that was an installation I made for my degree show here. And, and the work on the monitor was a sound and image work. There was also other sound in the space. But it was n about not really being a work that asked for, it, that was asking to be a kind of monumental thing that you interacted with and you gave your full attention to. It, was, it distracted you, it interrupted the space, it came and went. Um, and so I'm quite interested in, in those values of distraction or incoherence, I guess, as well. And I think that a lot of how we relate to each other and questions of gender are based on how we try and avoid being 
incoherent in a way. It's like a, there's a solid idea of what it is to be masculine and how that gets propped up by a solid idea of what it is to be female, I guess. Whereas actually within, underneath all of that is incoherence and <laughs> things falling apart or not coming together. Although my work doesn't necessarily directly address um, what it is to be female, I think there are values that are about that also rub up against gender politics that I'm interested in. That's great, thank you. Vanessa? Well, I think that's... I mean, the idea of, um, of the that sort of incoherence and the, the, the fear of being misunderstood, and yet, of course, that's how life is. I mean, I suppose it's interesting because I think um, coming in... Um, coming, uh, you know, coming to art from a slightly different, older perspective... Um, I think that was one of the really important things, which was the the singular lack of confidence in um, my generation, I would say, and probably generations prior to that. I mean, I, when I was first talking to um, Hilary about what we were going to talk about, I said I actually I came to London in 1971 as an art student, and sadly, it had already happened, but the very first... Women's Liberation March took place in the March before I came in, in, the, in the spring. I came in September. And I'm not saying it was you know, overtly you know, the leading light, but it certainly had an impact. And the impact was that it was like, you better start taking us seriously. Um, and yet we didn't really know how to be taken seriously when we were just following, as Lucy Lippard would have said and did say a few years later, we were just following history. We didn't have her story. And all of these things might now seem probably quite a mostly young audience history, but we were also involved in um, in Marxism, and we were thinking outside. We were trying to think about ways in which we could re-socialise uh, the world out there um, in a way that somehow, yes, our practice was. You know, we were artists, but we were equally interested in equal pay for nurses, equal pay for everybody. We didn't even have that yet, and that didn't come till seventy-five. Well, we still don't have it. I mean, we got the law changed, but. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a lot of... There were a lot academia. Of, yeah. So equal pay in yeah. academia is still an issue. Well, it, because half the time, we're so pleased to get a job, we don't negotiate. And that yes. is the big issue. Yes. And again, it's a confidence <laughs> thing. And I would say confidence is... I mean, uh, teaching for 35 years, and um, I think I used to say to every now and again in crits and things, if only I could give you the confidence pill. You know, there must be one there. But because half the time I was actually using not particularly good language, trying to shut the boys up. Yeah, Vanessa was my teacher for my first year <laughs> at the RV school. But, uh, yeah, it's all very, it's all very, you know. But, I mean, uh, um, but going back to my, going back to my practice, um, of course, um, one turned to, one did turn a lot to theory, literature in some cases. Um, you know, I, obviously, you know, histories of wonderful women's literature was there. If you poked about, you could find more. Um, in terms of the visual arts, it was, and, and to work that was, that interested me enormously, which would have been what would be called abstract, um, that I would actually obviously use the word representational as well, but I, I heard your, you know, on the surface non-representational, but of course it's representational. Um, and it was looking for, looking for people, looking for, constantly looking out there for artists that you could actually somehow relate to. Most of them weren't, didn't seem to, you know, they were, you know, Bridget Riley, there were some good ones, but it was difficult to find them. And bit by bit, one discovered and one got closer and closer. But the other point of it was that if you were actually interested in a certain kind of um, practices, and in my case it was painting, um, the obvious thing, which was part of things like the Women's Art Alliance, etc., was to find alternative media. 
And that was obvious, and I also found it very interesting. But there was a little bit of me that was not only just, you know, fighting the guys, but was also fighting the authority that said I had to go off and use some other kind of practice, which wasn't, you know, terribly um, politically clever of me. But it, I, was, I was really interested in constructivism. I was really interested in what painting could do. And, and how it's, it had its many, many languages, which, which were, as far as I was concerned, if they came from geometry, which they obviously did from very early on, they didn't belong to anybody. They had an enormous democracy that belonged to almost every culture, um, which that seemed to ring a bell, that seemed to be important. And I suppose all one could then do was to subvert and subvert and subvert. So one used words like decorative and ornamental, and watched as the male tutors, and they were nearly predominantly at St. Martin's, only one female tutor, at, at the Royal College, none at all. So one was always actually up against an argument, going red-faced, trying not to cry out of frustration, which is the, one of the worst thing that, things that women have to deal with. You know, the emotions, the time of the month, the crap, you know, and still going, I'm going to, you know, take this on, and you'd use... You'd use, you'd use words like ornamental and you'd, you'd use sugar pink and you, know, you knew you were going to get it, you knew you were going to get whatever, and you did. But you kept doing it. I also realised, as much as I, I mean, I'm a big, you know, modernist history is fantastic, but then, of course, the next thing to do is to subvert it again, you know, certainly with colour, but also with illusion. The idea that one, should, one could actually be a little illusionistic, a little bit playful, a little bit risky, a little bit off-piste. And, and, and constantly kind of make references to minimalists, which was all right, and then kind of go off to the Baroque and make it a bit more complicated. Um, I think that one just had to be a little deviant. Thank you. Eva, what brings you here? Oh, I'd forgotten what the question was. Um, well, what yeah. interest do you in being part of this panel? I have every interest in being part of this panel because I think that everything I do is defined through the prism of being a woman and uh, being a feminist, and that's not the subject from my work, but it informs everything that I do in my work and in my life, I suppose. I just don't see how the two can be separated. But I think one of the things that interests me, I suppose, in relation to a sculptural practice is the relationship that women and girls have to the material world and how that differs from what I see as the relationship that boys, and I deliberately say boys because our relationship with the material world obviously starts from day one, boys and men have with the um, material world. So, I mean, materiality is my focus in my work. And I think that there is a, we talked about this briefly before we came in, the idea of taking up space is, is sort of very central to the idea of being a sculptor, I think. And I think a kind of uh, tentativeness about that, especially because I, I taught for a long time at the Slade School of Art, and that sense of a sort of, um, an almost a sort of apologetic approach to taking up space, to making a grand gesture, a large object, an uncertainty about even the kind of sort of the brass tacks of making something because that hasn't been there in education. I mean, certainly where I came from, it's a bit different in this country, but I went to an all-girls school in, in Ireland. There was no sense that you might ever need to hammer a nail into anything, put up a shelf, let alone make a sculpture, you know? And I think that sort of um, kind of, I suppose, that sort of mystery of the material world sort of makes it at one remove, and I think you have to be very 
determined to perhaps engage with that. And I think that my sort of, it's sort of late arrival at sculpture actually, um, which is now something that I feel, how did I avoid it for so long, um, was very much to do with the sort of sense that through education and, um, you know, despite being brought up in a very sort of liberal family, I just sense that that was not something for, it just wasn't really there for, you know, the idea that you might make your own world just wasn't really there. And I think that that sort of kind of feeds through into sort of female making in some way and perhaps sort of um, how people are more tentative in their approach and perhaps apologetic. And I also think that um, a sense of certain materials being judged in certain ways really interests me as well. Obviously, there's certain materials that are um, generally sort of ascribed with different meaning depending on the gender of who's making it. I, uh, this year I went to the Venice by Biennale and as I was approaching the large um, exhibition hall in the Giardini, there was a huge, um, I don't know if any of you saw, there was huge black canvas sort of flags, curtains hanging down. I was with my friend and we both, as we approached it, we said, okay, it's either this artist or this artist, right? One's a man and one's a woman. And as we approached it, we both hoped that it was by the woman, but we knew that it was by the man. Um, and you may know the work that I'm referring to is a piece by Oscar Murillo, and it was a great work. But we both felt that had that been made by a woman, the sort of seriousness of it would have been different, the idea of how it would have been taken, how it would have been read, because fabric in particular is a very gendered material, and different meanings come in when it's used by um, men and by women. And I think at the moment there's a real incursion by uh, male artists into a lot of materials that have been used traditionally by women, such as craft um, materials, fabric and ceramics. And I think that that's really kind of, uh, for me as a, as a female maker, I'm not, this is my work here, I'm extremely engaged in making. It's a collection of extremely phallic sculptures. Well, they're not quite as phallic as the microphone I'm holding at the moment. <laughs> which uh, I was feeling a bit Linda Bengless about as I was, uh, as I was holding it while you were talking. Um, but I think that that sort of, um, that sort of uh, incursion into sort of female-led, I guess traditionally female ways of making is something that I think is very interesting and slightly kind of cat among the pigeons at the moment as a, as a moment in sculpture, you know. But then I think also as a female maker, it's a great moment for female sculpture. We see Phila de Barlow has been chosen to represent uh, Britain in, in Venice, which is fantastic. Because if there's any woman who's earned her right to take up space, not that we have to earn it, she is a great trailblazer for that. And I think that that sort of sense of apology, and you spoke about confidence, I think confidence is a really key thing in being a, a, a female artist and it is about not apologizing and it is about demanding space and it is about demanding attention and in some ways, I think you're right, in teaching it's like that is one of the crucial things that job. needs to be communicated, you know, you have to ask for it because no one's going to give it to you. It felt quite a difficult thing to talk about sometimes, the confidence thing, when I was studying because it felt like... You talk about it, you're unconfident. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, it's yeah. very important. Like, I think it's like really important. You're not supposed to ask for affirmation because that's seeking permission. And and mm. and somehow, if you if you talk about the fact that you might struggle with confidence, then yeah, you're perhaps maybe it's easier for the guys to say. You need to have a few people you can talk to about not being confident, but not all people. I think that's the <laughs> that's the real. But I think it. I think actually a position of confidence and and sort of. Um, 
sort of knowing that it is, it's, it's almost like the equal pay thing. It's like knowing that actually you, you are there and you should be treated equally, yeah. you know, and based only on your work. But it's also, it's also permission, it's also permission to do work that might be extremely ephemeral uh, yeah. as well mm -hmm. as, I mean, this is the, this is the, the other one, isn't it? Which is the point about work that actually slips in and out mm -hmm. and isn't necessarily, I mean, I don't make that work, but I'm mm -hmm. very appreciative of those who do. Yeah. The work that isn't as visually uh, going to grab, but actually has got m wonderfully poetic nuance mm -hmm. that is really wonderful to look at mm -hmm. or to be part to be with. Um, and th this is a tricky, tricky area too. Well, I think you know? somebody like Carla Black is a really good example mm -hmm. of somebody who's taken on a sort of very feminised um, sort of set of materials. I mean, much more so than say fabric or anything. I mean, makeup. You mm -hmm. know, we own it essentially. <laughs> Um, and she has managed to make a very extreme and sort of determined sculptural practice out of that and is very, very, I don't know if any of you know her, very determined and very confident in her, in her position around that. I think she's a, it's a very good example of this kind of a very powerful gendered making where the subject of her work isn't necessarily about gender, mm. um, but quite clearly her whole way of making comes from a gender position. I hope she would agree with me on that, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I, there's a, a couple of things that came to mind as you were speaking, and one was the title of an essay, and I, sorry, I can't remember who wrote it, it might have been Mirashaw, um, The Mike Kelly Problem. And this was, this was written many years ago before um, the late, great Mike Kelly died. Um, but it was talking about exactly that thing of, of what happens when you know an artist like Mike Kelly begins to use and also to acknowledge his debt to feminist work and to, and to use work to use materials that, that feminists have used and have explored, women have used and explored whether they're feminists or not. Um, but he would acknowledge his debt to the to the feminist debate, and yet, in the way in which his work was received by the the art world and the art market, that got written out of the of the context in which his 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 work was shown. Um, and then also thinking about Lucy Lepard and how, you know, it was when she was working um, on her, her book Six Years about the dematerialization of the art object, that was also the time that she was moving from her um, very class oriented in a New York sense of the word, politics and activism to the developing feminist movement and um, was beginning to embrace the women's movement in, in, in the States and thinking, of, thinking about that materiality and, and how it is it's hugely compromised by gender and how, how artists, I mean, the you know, use of makeup is, is you know, an obvious one, but how that work is then written about and valorized by the art market that is promoting that work and making it viable, making it, you know, get, giving it sort of the critical kudos that allows the artist to continue making their work, continue saying what they're saying, and to actually make a living as well. I think that, that economics are really important here. Um, so one of the questions here, this takes us back to one of the questions, um, does being a female artist influence how a work is created and perceived? One thing that I was just thinking as of, uh, along those lines and, and what you were both saying um, um, about kind of um, 
different kinds of practice and material ways of taking up space is that I suppose for me the because I mean I work with sculpture and print but a lot of my work has been um, moving image and sound and and that kind of new media um, is is a little less weighted with a kind of historical gendered canon I suppose um, and even like the filmmakers co-op I guess which was quite influential for me when I was starting on my BA um, from um, in the 70s that was that was men and women working together and developing material um, uh, processes as well as um, um, ideas and so I suppose as an area that feels a little more liberating to me and I and I think I am my work I am um, I am quite taking the idea of um, of uh, of the unstable, of kind of work that doesn't necessarily that infiltrates space rather than takes up space. And I I haven't really analysed too much at this point yet how much that is kind of purposeful, really. So that I've 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 found a way um, because I think I would find it quite difficult to make a huge. I, I know that there would be a, a, some, a challenge in, in taking up a big space in a way, but it's kind of working with sound, which takes up an enormous amount of space, but without me, but in a way that's not necessarily... Um, it slips in and out of presence, and that's, that slippage, that infiltration, feels like a place that I'm, um, I'm more comfortable, and I don't know how much that is to do with my experience of gender but I'm, I'm aware that that's 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 a possibility I would say that um, obviously I make work that takes up space I will I will say immediately that the works on the walls are always temporary because one questions the, the role of public art in lots of ways and sometimes it's fantastic and lots of times I think it's much better if it comes and it goes um, but um, or it moves you know whatever um, but I think it is interesting that because I think it's to do with practice. I think it's to do with the practices one one is one becomes involved in, and I think I was very interested in Eva's point about sort of um, you know the way the boys would use the materials and the automatic relationship they might have. But actually, what does it mean to be you know the body of the woman using materials is really. And I think I always felt that um, that the gendered point was I kind of did take it for granted that if I was using my body to make the, these forms to put into this space that was some form of one sort of architectural territory and the body, that of course it was feminine, it, and of course that made it overtly feminist. Um, because it's not, and it's because it's, and because of the use of perhaps different forms of sensuality within it, um, again, are to do with the body that, that is a, a female body. Um, at the same time, I'm, I think there's a, there's a part of me that also is also interested in being where, where the subject-object point would come in, is the point of, um, yes, of course, there's the subject that the, is the maker, and then there's the object, but then there's the subject of the looker, and then there's the object. It's a very confusing place. I always hoped and felt that the artist should not be actually seen, that the artist is, an, is something in the background, like the director of the film, you know, surely, yes, they've got a lot to, to do, they've got a job to, to do and, they, and they're in charge, but actually they're not on screen, they're not publicly out there. It's, it's very tricky because I think we've got so used to the fact that everybody has to be a personality and everybody, whether you write a book, you have to go on a book launch or if you, you know, you, or you've got to be seen 
hanging out in the right places with the right people. It's all very exciting. But actually, um, I would love a situation which was that, that it actually don't have to go to your own private view. <laughs> that you actually, the work is the work. Um, yes, you should talk about it if there's an opportunity, if there's something important to say. Um, but you're not, the, you're not in front of the work, the work's in front of you. And that whole idea of what then the gaze becomes from out there should be as little um, or, uh, influenced by personality first. And secondly, it would be implicit that it, I, I think it's pretty implicit um, to actually be able to see what gender. And gender itself has become fascinatingly difficult to the point of being wonderfully open. And I think of things like Martin Jay's Downcast Eyes, which of course was a seminal, another piece of seminal writing about the gays. Um, and it's already become historicized um, because thankfully less and less, are we less, we're less and less hopefully concerned about this notion called gender. Of course it's gonna take decades. And we're talking from London, not from yeah. somewhere more obscure. But um, to me, that thing about the, 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 the viewer, the viewer, all, all I would want from the viewer would be a little bit of time, which would be the same amount of time that you have as a film or you have as an object or interactive. Um, and that I would presume that the time that's given to something will itself come from the gender that's giving it, whatever that gender might be now. I wonder if I could ask you as, as somebody who makes paintings, um, about the way that paintings are talked about and the, the quite gendered language that is often used within, within mm. criticism and theorising of, of painting as an activity and paintings as objects mm. about you know, the vigorous gesture, the strength mm. of the work and so forth. Yeah. You know, it seems that the, the kind of feminised language um, denotes weakness and, and God forgive us, prettiness. Yep. Whereas you know the sort of masculinized language of, of vigor and life and so forth and boldness mm. um, are words of approval. And even the, the word that forgive me that you use seminal, uh, yep. deeply okay. gendered word. Yep. By the way, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, you're right. You're you know, right. I mean, it, we attract all the time. Yeah. Yeah. We how how. Is this something that you have experienced or that...? Yeah. Um, and and um, on, one, on one hand, um, one's choices, and my choice has been to take the gesture away, because that was his. And if the gesture was put in, then it was sending messages about certain kinds of sexuality I didn't want to be seen to be part of, historically. I think there's been a whole lot more over the years, which has been to... Uh, bring back, let's call it, the um, measured, the, the contained gesture, which might be anybody from Fiona Ray to, I mean, I can think of lots of people, um, where there is a gesture, but it's not a, or you could even, yeah, there's a gesture, but it's not a, it's not, it's not a direct gesture, I suppose. Um, a lot of the things I might talk about are about taking things out that were his, putting things in that are hers, I would love to use the word herstory, and I do use it, not just as a kind of like, uh, you know, joke, but because it's, you know, this place, I think last year or the year before, actually redid their book of rules where they put he and she into it. When you mentioned, when you mentioned Mary Moser and Kaufman, um, uh, you know, when we get to sign the scroll, as it were, um, we get to see the first sheet of the first people who were the Royal Academicians. And yes, the two women are there with Sir Joshua Reynolds. I don't think there's another woman until Dame Laura Knight or something, 1920-something. I mean, 
and it's still not great, but you know it's changing. Um, but you know this this um, it's in many ways it's about constantly you know using language, and you're right, you know how we use it is is actually how it plays out, and. I mean, Thatcher's word, which was her favorite word, was thrust. Didn't do us any favors. She used it constantly. She wasn't a feminist. She, in fact, refused to be seen as one, you know, like, oh, I've done it all myself. Oh, gosh. Don't even, let's not even go there. Let's not even go there. Um, Eva, you talked about materiality. So um, have you had direct experience of people gendering your work in the way in which they talk about it? Or how do you insist upon the gen... I mean, you, you, you said you can't but be political when you're making art. Yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you insist on that through the materiality of your work and how, and how you want it to be received? Well, I don't think about it specifically when I enter into making work. I feel like it's... I'm present, the work is present. For, for me, the thing is to make the work the way the work should be and not to, I mean, I make quite a lot of very large work as well, to, to sort of really own that and to be really confident in doing that and not to be, and it is a kind of a, it's a decision as well to sort of not shy away from that and to actually be quite bold in, in making and in an engagement with, the space that the work takes up, the materiality. And it is, it is a sort of backwards and forwards where you kind of find yourself sort of shutting yourself down sometimes and having to stop yourself and then say, no, I am going to go further with that. I am going to do that. In some ways, that actually... Can you give us an example? Um, I think it just happens all the time. You know, I think of, of doing something about... in a show or something and you think, oh, I'll, I'll make... I don't know, A, B, and C, and then you think, oh, perhaps not C. And then, in a way, it's like, you kind of, it's like almost a fear of being over the top or something, or a sort of, um, I don't know, it's like a fear of kind of uh, showing too much or exposing too much or being too present, you know, perhaps, and taking a risk. It's like, because obviously the more you do, the more there is to criticize. You know, if you work in a reductive way, you can, I mean, which is a legitimate practice, and in many ways my sculptures are very reductive in that they're very formal. But if you work in a sort of reductive way sometimes, you are taking less risk, you know. So I think the risk involved in making, and it, it, there's not always a risk involved in making something large, but, you know, you set yourself up to fail, I guess, in many ways, and you set yourself up for more criticism because you have ventured something, you've put something out there. And I think that that sort of sense of, I mean, right now I'm thinking about a show I'm going to make this year, and I'm sort of teetering on the edge of doing something completely excessive. And then so part of my brain is going, no, 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 that will be too much, that will be a bit crazy and, you know, sort of, I don't know, like almost like theatrical or something, you know? And then the other part of me is going, just do it, just do it, you know? Like what, what if you don't risk this, you know? And I think that sense of not sort of self-censoring in relation to making is really important to me. And it's a constant struggle for me because even at this stage in, in my, um, I guess, reasonably long career of making, it's probably been about I don't know, 20 years now, I still have a, can I make this? Can I do this? I have a, it's taken me years to be confident about sort of things like 
just making things. You know, I am diabolical at woodwork. I couldn't well to save my life. But yeah, the work gets done. It gets out there, you know, and still most of it is made by me with one other person in the studio. It's like you have to sort of force yourself into it. And I find that that... I think that is from a kind of background of feeling that you don't have that sort of will to sort of power to create the world when you were younger, you know? I, I feel like I came to that sort of through a series of very... actually making the decision to do that. It did not come naturally. And I think it, I really began thinking about this when I began teaching because I could see it in the students coming in that there was... You know, the male students would come in and they would immediately start sort of take, you know, it's very cliched, but start taking things out of the skip and sort of building giant things in the studio. And the female students would come in and take photographs of their body and uh, hide behind a laptop. Um, and I, it wasn't to do with, I don't know if you want to call it talent or ability or what they had to say. It was about a confidence about claiming space. And about and and it took me years to get to that point, and I still have to sort of work with that. And I I think that is really a very and I don't think that people would perceive my work like that. I think they see it and they see it's very present, you know. But that sort of way of thinking about can I do this is very um, gendered, I think. And I don't know if I answered your question, so sorry about that. I, I think I think you. I think you did beautifully, um, and in raising that that whole point of you know is it too much? I think that's something that many women feel. I mean, as a dean, I feel that I have to say, you know, was I too much? There? Am I too much? I'm always saying that. Am I too much? <laughs> did I say too uh, much? Yeah. yeah. Did I say? Am I, am I being too much? And and um, was I drunk? <laughs> I think there is that sense that to be taken seriously as well, mm -hmm. you can't slip up. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that is very, very relevant to being a female artist. And I, I think that there are certain female artists who make a sort of virtue of slipping up all the time and being very present and become are often taken as a caricature or mm -hmm. people say things about them. Isa Genskin is somebody who comes to mind where people go, you know, she has manic depression, she's crazy, you know. Yeah. I mean, people do not say that about... Or, or if they do say about... A male artist's perhaps mental illness or mm -hmm. drunkenness or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's kind of in a sort of more sort of reverent, like they're Bravado. the grand, yeah, mm -hmm. the grand character, the Francis Bacon. The, mm -hmm. You know, there is not an equivalent. Or, or the Chris that. Burden, where, where yes. it's you know it's the absolutely. work and then it's yeah, you know, absolutely. End of story. I think this the personality of the male artist. You look at Kippenberger; mm -hmm. it looms large, you know. Mm -hmm. And even if you look at figures who very much have a sort of personality or a sort of sense of presence in the art world, I mean the obvious ones are Louise Bourgeois or Eva Hesse. I mean, Eva Hesse is the sort of tragic, beautiful person, you know, cut from us, taken from us too soon. So easy to identify with in that way, in a sort of tragic myth-making way. Then Louise Bourgeois, you know, we can look at her, you know, you never see pictures of her when she's young either. It's always this sort of like, sort of wizened mother-like sort of, you know, oracle. You know, the archetypes are very different. Than they made the, a, mm -hmm. they made a big thing of the of Agnes Martin's schizophrenia. In the, in, I was like, of you know, Isaganskin's yeah. you know, bipolar, whatever. Yeah. Which you know, I do. That's just what I've heard. I don't know, but I mean, there is a a sort of sense that there is this sort of different myth making around female artists. Then with with the male artists, you get the male genius. I mean, Kippenberger, mm -hmm. uh, the sort of distant Warhol. 
um, you know the whole thing, Dieter Roth, you know, this sort of very big kind of, and even you look at contemporary people like Urs Fischer, this really sort of present masculinity within it that I think there just is not an equivalent sort of thing. But that's, that goes back to, I've heard Christine Battersby talk before about that idea of the, the of male genius and that that's st still left over it, that then genius is in, inherently male because it's basically a male with those kind of emotive, intuitive apparently female quality so by definition mm -hmm. the combination of a man and those is is male because mm -hmm. if, if you're a woman you just have those qualities but if you apply those qualities to a man then it becomes genius mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I think maybe that so bring on the transgender artists then. yes, yes. yes. Absolutely. completely Absolutely. and then also I guess a little bit of of that is in that sense of um, I, I guess I do feel like it's important, that bit of um, value and you were talking about taking things seriously, that's kind of, sort of taking up space, being necessary to be partly in a way to be taken seriously. I think, um, I think now, ways for both men and women working, I guess what I feel when I say I wouldn't necessarily feel confident taking up a big space, I'm also not sure that I, w I want to approach it in and that way. And why should I, you? No, I feel like I want to f to, to reascribe values for different yeah. attention to how things operate in space. And that that doesn't have to be um, one way of um, interacting with space that has that kind of value. That, that then yeah. there, are, there are... So that it's, it's, it's kind of... Um, Yes, yeah, so it doesn't have to be gendered as well. So it's kind of, you start to kind of have more freedom. There was, um, there was something I heard Hito Stael talk about. I mean, coming back to, because I also think about how film takes yeah, up space yeah. a lot. And, um, uh, and obviously, artist film is also informed by cinematic history in film. And the, the um, famous film, um, The Man with the Movie Camera, mm -hmm. um, I, Bertolf, isn't it, the Russian um, cinema verite film. And Hito Stel was talking about saying, well, actually, you know, that's so typical that he became the man with the movie camera because actually that film came about because of his partner, other woman in the editing suite. And mm -hmm. so it's like the man with the camera out front, but actually the woman who created all of this is space was it. And that bit about editing and that being a different way of inhabiting space, it's, yeah. it's not... Mm -hmm. Um, do, do you think women? I mean, I'm wondering too whether it's not just the kind of collaborative elements of that, which I think yes. are which are I interesting. I think that's really important and as I, well, not singular yeah. authorship. And, and I think that's sort of also we've all. I mean, all of us who've worked in the academic world know what that's like. That you know, the team thing that we quite enjoy as women, and not necessarily having to have the idea, and um, and actually enjoying that it's something which is you know a collaborative uh, job. Um, is I think it's 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 very curious. My last um, so many years of teaching were amazing. I had um, I had t my two bosses were women, and um, uh, it was um, quite unusual because I'm pretty sure that sometime about 40 years ago I I lowered my tone so I could cut through the crap sometimes that was the the deep voices that were out there. Um, it, but you know that that's another story. But but I, I do tell actually plenty of stories. Yeah, but I do think I do think there's. Um, I do think there's something about enjoying actually 
uh, work, you know, not just, I don't just mean literally the collaborative, which I think in your case there is some that is, but I also think the idea that one um, is interested in sharing the possibilities of languages without necessarily having to have great ownership of them, which is something I've always enjoyed. I've always enjoyed, you know, the, the kind of, the fact that there are other people who, who I'm quite happy do what I do better. And they get, when I do talks about my work, I'll talk about quite a lot of um, contemporary artists, um, Valerie Jourdain, or you know, a man called Tim Renshaw, or another woman called Joe Stockham, or, or Joe Bruton, or um, I will talk about other people's work um, to my heart's content, because I love the fact that we share stuff. Yeah. And I have to say, I can go to most lectures, and women's lectures included, but certainly the male lectures, where they might, men they might mention Goya, or something back in history or Picasso. Or, or Picasso. But they're actually not going to mention the bloke in the studio next door mm -hmm. because that would be like yeah. taking away from that id, ego, here we go again business. And I do think there's something perhaps different. I'm not saying this isn't obviously, this is a generalisation, but I think it's, it's more likely with women that they're happy to learn and love and share and be part of a, a gang support. I'm not that's so not, sure. You know, well, <laughs> well... But well, I know I, there, I know there are exceptions. I know I'm not. You know, I'm not going to yeah. pretend it's all it's all marvelous out there. But I think it's also because we 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 could we do that in a sort of private way because actually um, we weren't part of the system that had the rather overtly still overt male club, which is a. Uh, a, you know the social the social groupings that go on that one sees. Observe the government. Yeah. Well, it's cool exactly. Together. Yeah. Exactly. But even um, even amongst you know a fabulous group of. Royal Academy students, the boys that actually men. Sorry, there's always women. It's always women and boys. I had to keep stop myself there. The men who had already kind of caught, um, made little groupings of themselves mm. and were already doing shows, or who were, or already had sort of, uh, you know, got a social life that they mm. they perpetuated, and it took a lot longer for the women. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if I could just come back to to the, that institutional moment because. My experience, um, having been a dean in two different institutions, is that when you advertise leadership positions, women don't apply for them. Um, women apply for lectureships, senior lectureships, and professorships. I mean, a couple of decades ago, women were not applying for the professorships, and now they do, which is a beautiful thing. But they're not applying for the leadership positions. So, um, you know, I have a senior team, which is virtually all male, not, not exclusively all male, but women, women are just not, not taking up those kinds of institutional spaces. Now, on the one hand, I can, I can understand why, you know, who would, want <laughs> who would want to be part of that madhouse? But on the other hand, you know, when you're in a leadership position, you really affect the lives of the students. You can shape what's happening to those female students, which are the majority of, stu of art students in a very direct way and I think it's, you know, it is, um, it, it can be a political decision to go for those jobs as well. I'm just keeping my eye on the time and I want to leave some time for questions. So I, I've got a final, final question for the, for the panel here before we open it up, which is about the female gaze. How significant is the female gaze in contemporary art? Work that is presented from a female perspective or reflecting female Attitudes. Now, the, the word that was written down is female. It's not feminine and it's not feminist. It's female. You might want to challenge that. Who wants to go first? <laughs> I think I've sort of... I, thought, I think I said a bit about... I have to say it's not something I think about that much. I think more about the female maker. So, I... 
I guess it's not it's not a major sort of concern to me. I think that the the different types of gaze or looking at objects that I think about in relation to my work is I think a lot of, a lot of what I think about is very prosaic in some way. I think about the different ways people engage with work depending on actually what they do in their lives. Mm -hmm. I find it really interesting how people approach the material world when they have no involvement with making. That's something that really interests me, but I don't specifically think of a gendered way of looking at my work, I suppose. I think the work maybe reflects that more back at the viewer. So for me, it's not such a sort of present issue. Well, I'll just say a little bit, because I think I, 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 think I am interested in it in to, to the point of um, it's, I'm interested in how one can make one could ask for some sort of reflection. That would be the point. The reflexive, you know, from having the point of view of having made the work, and then it's the reflexive point about... And this, this comes back to things like representation, too, because um, I'm, I'm aware that um, because I like a curve or two and because I like to uh, use colour, which is probably quite often seductive, etc., I'm using, you know, things that any gender could use but on the but i'm also interested in the fact that i'm probably making it uh sort of just a little bit more um a, a sexy or sensuous from my point of view so therefore I'm, I'm expecting that it's probably going to be picked up on more in more overtly by a um a female gaze which would un, which would get it um because the male the, the the male gaze um actually often says to me, this is quite interesting, literally the audience person says, why don't you make sculpture? Which is interesting, because I'm actually wanting to do the thing which is not the thing in the room, but the illusion of the thing in the room. Yeah. And it's kind of going, constantly kind of going, well, because I want, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is an interesting point, because they want, they, they like, they like, they enjoy, this is a gender nightmare here. They enjoy that physicality thing which, of course, is always in anybody's work if you put something into a space. And I'm trying to sort of somehow withdraw it or subvert it. So there is a, there is a shifting, shifting gaze. Uh, to control that gaze, which, are, which I suppose one, in some ways, as an artist, one should be doing, is probably nigh on impossible. Mm. But it's interesting to have, the, you know, to have the conversations. Yeah, I mean, I think, like Eva, it's, it's not something that I directly think about in relation to my work a lot. But I suppose I th think about gaze as also being about desire. And that desire then is reaching for something that becomes kind of stable. So I think it goes back to a bit of something where I think about it, something a bit I thought about at the beginning, that female gaze came about from from what I understand an, an answer then to male gaze that was perhaps prompted in part by voyeuristic way of thinking about desire or as a kind of fetishistic idea that this is kind of an answer to the instability about you know perhaps the instability about masculinity that can't be acknowledged and therefore um, I fetishize a, a, fe a female as um, as a kind of, as a fix, really, as a solution and, and something to stabilise me. So I, I think about, because I'm quite interested in those kind of, um, because my work kind of shift, even just on a formal level, shifting between, is it image or is it object? Is it, is it you know, my speakers are, are images sometimes. Is it sound or is it object? Is it, that, that kind of slippage really interests me. Is it, is it present or is it not present? And... Um, is it with me or, or not? Am I, you know, th those kind of slippages. So there's desire in that. I'm also quite interested in a kind of 
reach that reaching for stability. Um, and I think that is often how we approach gays, whether a kind of sense of a, a female kind of oppositional, I think gays, mm. in answer to the male gays, is always reaching for stability through desire. Mm. And I'm interested that in that in my practice, definitely. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.